Excellent. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> this is good stuff, I'm telling you. Woo! This is the kind of thing that, this is what my sermon's about. We think, you know what, if we can't get it going, if we can't get something going, how is God going to get anything going? If we can't get this YouTube going, what is God going to do? How could he possibly work in the world without us? And, and that this sermon is going to be very helpful for us because we make so much out of ourselves and so much out of what we can and cannot do. And God is out there right now doing things we could hardly imagine to glorify himself and to bless us. And it is, it is a wonderful thing. And that is what our sermon is about today. We're in 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 5. We're going to go through the whole, uh, the whole chapter. We're going to look at what is going on with Yahweh. He's, he's in exile now amongst the Philistines. And Israel's very concerned about him. What are they going to do? What is he going to do? What's going to happen? So before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are the triune God, the God of creation, the God of life, the God of death, the God of salvation, the God, Lord, that is um, unstoppable. You are wild. You are unpredictable. You are righteous. You are good. You are safe. Lord, for our souls. It, it, is, it is a wonderful thing to trust you. It is a wonderful thing to look at your scarred hands and know that we rest in them. We pray, Lord God, that you would teach us what it is to rest in your hands. We pray, Lord, that you would also teach us the might of your hands, your hands that are never idle, your hands that, can, um, that are full of power that cannot be stopped. We thank you and we praise you for the ministry of Samuel, um, for, for the story here about the ark in amongst the Philistines, and we pray, Lord, as we study it, as we consider what it means, uh, not only for the people at the time, but us, for us, ourselves, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to be renewed, to be refreshed. We thank you, and we praise you, and amen. Now, what does it mean when God starts to topple idols? Last week, we saw that God, in this moment, in the early parts of 1 Samuel, is in a Golgotha-style moment. He is defeated on the battlefield by the Philistines. Last week, what we, what we considered was the fact that God, in this moment, in this Golgotha moment, was in fact defeating the idol of covenant presumption. He was teaching his people not to presume upon him, not to presume upon his throne, not to treat his throne like a rabbit's foot. Now he has gone into exile. Now he has gone down into what appears to be a grave, into the kingdom of darkness. And what is his purpose in doing this? What is he trying to teach Israel? What is he trying to teach the Philistines? The Ark narrative is Yahweh's war against the idols of men. When God rises to war, no idol is safe, which means that no person is safe, believer or unbeliever. For as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories, little workshops where we craft idols out of our desires. And if God rises to go to war against the idols, none of them are safe, which means none of us are safe. This week we are going to look at Yahweh's war against ignorance. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart, futility of the mind, alienated from the life of God, 
ignorance. That's what ignorance is. These are the things that Jesus addresses so that we might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know Christ is to know his promises. To know Christ is to know, to know his promises, to experience them. There is no eternal life without knowing him. Knowing him personally is the source, is the access point to all that he has promised mankind. The ark narrative echoes the, um, the exodus of Israel because God is always seeking to reveal himself for the salvation of his people. That is always what he has in mind. He is always seeking to reveal himself so that his people might be saved. That's what the Exodus story is. That's what the story is of every believer. Yahweh is addressing darkened mind, darkened minds and hardened hearts and alienation from himself due to ignorance. The ignorance is the problem. Yahweh is not a god amongst gods. He is not a, a mere viable option among a, a pantheon of deities. Yahweh displays his might and power against idols so that those who are trapped by idols may know that his rule and reign over the cosmos is benevolent and good and right. That is what he's seeking to understand. When he is striking down idols, when he is coming at us <laughs> and coming at the idols of our hearts, the thing that he is trying to get us to understand is who he is, the Lord of the cosmos. We read this in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That is what he wants them to know. It, it is, it is a, a monstrous lie that God doesn't want to be known. It's a monstrous lie that he makes things so mysterious that no one can approach him. That is a lie of the pagans. That is a lie of unbelievers. That is a lie of darkness that comes from the pit of hell because that is exactly what God wants. He wants to be known. The problem is what he wants us to know about himself does hardly aligns with what we want to know about him. And when he does reveal himself, he is often, almost always, a very different God than what we wanted, a very different God than what we expected, and that's the problem. The problem is not one of self-revelation. The problem is, do we accept the self-revelation of God? Now, theologian John Frame, his whole system of theology is based on this idea of the self-revelation of the Lord's lordship. This is what John Frame, this is how he explains this in his introduction to systematic theology. He says this, We should notice, too, that over and over and over again in Scripture, God says he is going to do this or that so that people shall know that I am the Lord. So we say that, God is Lord is the fundamental confession of the people of God in the Old Testament. The fundamental confession in the New Testament to the New Testament people of God is this. Jesus is Lord. That is a way of summarizing the main content of the Bible. God is Lord. This is the message of the Old Testament. Jesus is Lord is the message of the New Testament. If we want to know the God of Scripture, we must come to know 
him as Lord. God wants to be known as the Lord and Savior of mankind. That is what he is seeking. And he will do it at any cost to us or him. That's what we looked at last week. He will reveal himself as the Lord of the cosmos at any cost to us, at any cost to him. And that ought to terrify us. That ought to terrify us. That ought to fill us with fear. But what kind of fear? That's what we're going to be looking at through the story. There are two kinds of fear. There are two kinds of terror at the self-revelation of God. One that leads to life and one that leads to death. When God starts to tear down idols, he is pouring out fresh revelations of himself so that people might know him and be saved unto eternal life. So this week we see how much it costs the idol-worshipping Philistines and how Yahweh's message to the Philistines is also a message to Israel. The Lord... Yahweh stands above every God. He stands above every man. No one can take anything from him, and no one can offer him anything. When we do offer him things, all we are doing is giving back to him what is already his. He wants something from us, and it's what's already his. There is nothing that any man can offer God that he does not already have in and of himself. We have to understand this. He does not need us. He does not need you and I. And yet he wants you and I. And he's willing to go to great lengths to get us. This is a great mystery. But it's one that he, it's a story that he never gets tired of telling. He wants us to understand. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he's willing to go to great lengths and pay great prices to have us. He does not eat or drink like a man. He does not tire. He is not poor. He is not ignorant. He is not needy. He lays down and he takes up at his will. He lifts up and he brings low at his will. His ways are not our ways, and his counsels are too deep for us. We ought to be very careful asking God to to let us see his counsels. If we saw what he was planning, if we said, okay, show me where I'm going to be in three weeks, it, it would be the kind of thing that would break our minds. It would be the kind of thing that would truly fill us with a great deal of fear and terror. We can hardly understand what he's doing today, let alone what he might be doing next week. Now, at times, in the life of the church, this is a lesson that God will repeat for us. Oftentimes, because of difficult circumstances, we grasp in the dark, wondering where did God go, what is God doing, has he forgotten us, has he abandoned us? And at that moment, unbeknownst to us, he is tearing down idols and driving out the ignorance of himself perpetrating again and again and again, victory from defeat, life from death. Now last week we saw that Yahweh's throne was taken, his people defeated, and in this all seems lost. Now I think this, this is a moment that might speak to all of us a great deal. Right? At, at last week we ended at the, the end of chapter 4, the ark was taken away, all the high priests were dead, the, the people were defeated, all seemed lost. And yet, Yahweh has his enemies and his people right where he wants them. They are exactly where they're supposed to be. Everything is coming together perfectly to him. So we go on and we read. What happens? What happens to Yahweh when he goes into exile? This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, 
Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. (laughs) Eli is not the only one who fell with a head injury. The Philistines proclaimed Dagon's victory over Israel by placing Yahweh's throne at Dagon's feet. They bring the ark in and they put it at his feet and they say whatever power it has now serves Dagon. This is how pagans always view their victories. Judges chapter 16 verse 24. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand. The ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Pagans in this day saw their victory in the battlefield to be a victory of their gods. Their God over Israel's God. So they they, they bring the ark into Dagon's temple because they believe that Dagon has defeated Yahweh. So like a new household slave brought back from the defeated army, Yahweh will now stand at Dagon's feet to serve him and do Dagon's bidding. Now Dagon, linguistically, is of Canaanite origin. He was the head of a pantheon of Philistine deities, including Beelzebub. That's one we're going to hear of later in the Bible. He's the god of Ekron. And another god named Ashtoreth, which is where they would get these Ashtoreth poles that they would use to, these phallic symbols that they used to stick into the temple and they would make high places and worship them. So these are the, th- the three gods, Dagon, Beelzebub, and Ashtoreth, the Philistine gods. These Philistines are treating Yahweh's throne as a mere relic of yet another god. This is revealed to be, though, not a war between nations, but between gods. And this is always the way in the Old Testament. It's never just two nations fighting one another. It's always God versus God. This is what um, Homer's book, The Odyssey, is about. If you you go and you look at that, you see Troy, and you see the Greeks, and they're fighting one another. And all the while they're fighting on earth, gods are fighting in the heavens. Now, this is a poem, this is a story that was written by a pagan, but it it reveals the worldview. And if you go and you look in the Bible, they have the same worldview. The people in the Old Testament believe when they destroy another nation, their god has beat up their god. This is what the Lord says in Exodus 12.12. This is what God says. He, this is how he also sees it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He says in Exodus 15.3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So when he goes and he does all those plagues back in Egypt, the point was he was defeating individual Egyptian deities. Right? He, puts, he darkens the sky because the, the chief god in, amongst the Egyptians is Ra, the sun god. And so he darkens the sky because Ra is a no god. Ra is a nobody. Ra does not exist. Ra licks the Lord's boots. This is what God is showing all throughout the Exodus. He is destroying the gods of the Egyptians. And so now, what does it mean that the Lord's throne has been brought to the feet of Dagon. Is there a great reversal now? Is Dagon the chief god and Yahweh is not? But this is what it, it says. The, later the, the psalmist is going to comment on all of these things that are going on at this point. And it says in Psalm 78 verse 65 and 66 Then the Lord awoke as from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Just like Yahweh came at night in the Passover, he humbles here the chief idol of the Philistines overnight. Early in the morning, about the time that the morning sacrifices were being offered to Yahweh by the Israelites, Dagon is found by his priests 
prostrate before Yahweh, just like Israel before the throne of the God of gods. It's in the morning, it's the time of the sacrifice, and, the de- and, and all the priests of Dagon go to, to fawn over him and worship him, and there they find him face down before the throne of Yahweh. The day of Dagon proves to be, in reality, the day of Yahweh. And then here is the master stroke. This is God's sense of humor. He never gets tired of this kind of joke. It says in verse 3, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. He is such a mighty God that he needs man to pick him up and place him back on his pedestal. He can't even rise up himself. He's literally fallen and cannot get up. This is hilarious. This is, is quite funny. Yahweh is the Lord of Psalm 2 who says, it says of him, he sits in the heavens and laughs. He holds them in derision. God is making a joke of the gods of the Philistines. Who could be frightened of a God who cannot even rise up and defend himself? Who is frightened or fearful of a God who cannot get to his own place on his own recognizance? The so-called defeated God was brought before the lords of the Philistia to be mocked and instead he is destroying them. Yahweh is showing that the deities of his enemies are nothing. They are powerless and empty vessels. In Psalm 115, 4-8, this is what it says of idols. They are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. In Acts chapter 17, verse 29, it says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Dagon is exposed to be mere wood and stone, deaf and dumb and blind powerless and of vain imagination. Yahweh is revealing the truth to the Philistines. All along they believe their gods are somebodies, and Yahweh is showing them that they are in fact nobodies and nothing. There's nothing behind the throne of Dagon. Their idols are weak and there is no hope. There is no strength in them. They cannot stand before the true God of the cosmos. Dagon is literally down on the mat and can't get up. He cannot get up. The fight is not going his way. And yet, Yahweh is not finished with him. Yahweh, in this, in, in, in this instance, this is sometimes a crass comparison, but I, you know, if you look at the old boxing matches, two gentlemen, and they were gentlemen, standing in a ring, exchanging punches, and as soon as you know, one guy gets hit a little too hard or there's a problem, he gets you know, head-butted, they, they kind of separate them and they go to their corners and they're, they're waiting for the other guy to be ready, right? In boxing, this is how it is. It's a very gentlemanly way of fighting. But what, what I love about Yahweh here is that he looks like an MMA fighter. In MMA fighting, when the guy goes down on the mat, you don't stop. You just keep punching. And, and sometimes uh, the guy is unconscious, and they're still punching him. And, and to me, that is what this seems like. God, at this, once he is risen to fight, he is fighting, and there is no mercy. Right? He doesn't give Dagon any room to breathe here. He's no more up in his, back in his place, thanks to his priests, when it tells us in verse 4 and 5, this is what it says. This is what he does next. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdad to this day. 
So it's bad enough that he's fallen down on the mat. It's bad enough that they have to lift him and put him back in his place. They come back this, the next day, and he's down on his face again, but this time he's headless and handless. Yahweh's literally cut his head off and cut his hands off. Right? But you go in there, and what's in there? There's just this gold box, this fancy-looking box. And if you open up the fancy box, what's in there? The law of God, some manna, a jar of manna, Aaron's stick. <coughs> So who's done this then? Who did it? Did he need a human hand? Did his priests come secretly in the night and do this? No. This is the power of our God. This is the power of our God. It says in Genesis 3.15 that God's son of promise will come and crush the head of his enemies. God has already crushed the head of Eli and now he has crushed the head of Dagon. The Lord is renewing the, the promise through an, an, an enacted parable much like Christ would do later in his ministry. Breaking hands is also significant since hands symbolize power. The strong hand of the Lord is mentioned in verse 7, 9, 11, and 15 of chapter 5. The strong hand of the Lord is against the Philistines. And yet, where are the hands of Dagon? Yahweh is against Philistia and her no-gods. Dagon is powerless and headless, faceless, and void of personality. Yahweh commits a ritual execution and dismemberment. And this is going to become a pattern now in First and Second Samuel. This is how you deal with your enemies. You chop their heads off and you cut their hands off. Later, what they're going to do to a bunch of captured kings is cut their big toe and their thumbs off. Yahweh commits a ritual execution and dismemberment. Dagon is getting the godness literally knocked out of him. The apparently defeated god is, in fact, defeating the victorious god in his own house. Right? It's not enough that Yahweh would have defeated the Philistines out on the battlefield. He, he, it was a feint. It was a distraction. They brought him into the house of their God, and he is defeating their gods in their very house. It was not enough f- for him to defeat them in the fields. He's like, take me to his house. Show me where he sleeps. Show me where he lives. Show me where he's worshipped, and I'll whoop him there. And I'll whoop him so bad that you won't even walk on the doorstep when I'm done with him. He changed the very way that they worship this no God. That, that's how fiercely, right? Even after this is over and people explain it away or they forget all about it, they still wouldn't tread where his head and hands were. were. He literally changes the, the worship of a false god. Now this is an echo of other events that took place near the same time as this. Some 20 years later, the Philistines brought another trophy of Israelite war into the Temple of Dagon, and his name is Samson. And in that case, not only the image of Dagon, but the whole temple will be destroyed, along with the lords of the Philistines. Psalm 78 describes the exile of the ark by bringing out its parallels with the story of Samson. In Psalm 78, we read this in verses 60 through 66. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among the mankind, and delivered his power to captivity and his, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. The Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome with wine. Yahweh fought in the house of Dagon, not just a greater Samson, but a drunken Samson. 
and Yahweh defeats the no-god. And with the shepherd struck down, the living God next breaks out against the Philistines themselves. Right? He's destroyed the only force that could stop him, allegedly. He's put down the shepherd, and, and, and are what, what's left to him now are the sheep, the Philistines themselves. The Lord wants the Philistines as his own. He wants to give them an opportunity to repent. He wants to give them an opportunity to change their hearts and minds. He's going to now, right, between here and when Samson comes back and destroys them, it's 20 years. He's giving them a half a generation to get their act together and to realize who he is and what they owe him. He's removing their idols as comforts and protections, and so now he goes after the people themselves. And that's what we read in verse 6 through 10 of chapter 5. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. Now, back before the battle of Aphek in, in chapter 4, verse 7 and 9, the Philistines admitted to knowing about the deities of Israel. Remember? The ark of the Lord came into the camp of the Israelites, and the, and the Philistines are fill, filled with fear. They, they have heard of these deities, they say. They, it's plural because they can't imagine a, a single god. A, and it filled them with fear. Fear that caused them to rise up and fight like men. Now, what happened to that fear of God? Right? If they feared him so much so that they were terrified before the battle, after the battle, what happened to that fear? Was it a lasting fear? Was it a holy fear? Was it a true and living fear and reverence for the God of Israel? They were quite emboldened now by their victory and seemed to have thought that their pantheon was stronger than the pantheon of the gods of Egypt. Their ignorance of who they are dealing with is fully revealed, and the fact that after Yahweh humbles and defeats their gods, they take the ark on a victory tour of Philistia. Right? It's just a golden box. It's just a golden box. So, okay, fine. It's not working out there. We're not really sure what's going on. So let's take the box and let's take it to this city over here. And then what happens? A bunch of people get sick and pestilence breaks out and a bunch of people die and they're full of terror. And they're like, okay, um, well, it's just a gold box. So let's take it to this city. And everywhere they, they take this thing, the Lord breaks out against those people and he crushes them. He defeats them again and again and again and again. They're not heeding the obvious warning signs. And so he kills more people. He, he makes more people to suffer. He brings more people under judgment in order to get their attention. And it takes three rounds of this before he finally gets them to slow down and have a council and determine what is it that's actually causing this to happen to them. He's broken out against them. They unleash the wrath of God on city after city after city. They are the architects of their own destruction. Yahweh's throne has to be handled a certain way, according to Numbers and Deuteronomy. It has to be shown the proper reverence and worship. 
the Philistines' ignorance and arrogance is no defense for them. Before the Battle of Aphek, they had shown fear, and it had steeled their nerves, but we see that it was just a passing fancy. There is a fear of God that does not lead to wisdom. It does not lead to obedience. This is what we read about in 2 Kings chapter 17. It says, They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. This is a passage that explains the apostasy of Israel. They feared God, but they also feared a bunch of other gods. So the Philistines, we see, didn't really fear God in it in a salvific way. They weren't converted on the battlefield. They simply were afraid of him like they would be afraid of any other God. And God is, Yahweh is going to now show them he's not just any other God. Contrast this with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs, and obedience, according to Deuteronomy. This is how one commentator explains these two kinds of fears. Here then, he says of our passage in Kings, Here then is the touchstone of a genuine and a false fear of God. One disposes us to do his will from a sincere gratification and agreement with his will. The other, a compliance, a necessary escape of wrath, which is the only real object of this slavish dread. One is a fear of punishment as the consequence of sin. The other, a fear of sin itself as an intrinsic evil. Now, only a reverent fear disposes men to serve God. Only a reverent fear disposes men to serve God. Selfish and slavish fear disposes them to flee from him. There seems to be a natural propensity to look upon fear, blank fear, as the essence of devotion. That's what a lot of people think that we would owe if there was a God, if there was someone who created all of this, if there was someone that powerful and that knowledgeable all we have to do is, is fear him and obey him so that he doesn't destroy us. There's no love in it. There's no obedience. There's no trust. There's no joy. This is the natural propensity. Now, this is what many people think is the essence of devotion. He goes on. As the whole of what is due to God, the rendering of which absolves from all obligation to believe, to trust, to love, or to obey. Among the heathen, this idea of religion is perhaps predominant, or certainly far more prevalent than we frequently imagine. Right? We, we know this, that there are people like this. They don't give any sort of thought to a god of any kind, and then all of a sudden, right, they get into a, some frightful situation where the airplane experiences a great deal of turbulence, and suddenly they're praying and devoting things to God and saying, well, you know, if you just let me survive... This is a slavish fear. This isn't, there's no devotion in it. And this is the kind of fear that fills pagans. And, and, and look at what the Lord God has to do to get, to, to get their attention, to get them beyond just this servile fear. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 explains this. There is a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a kind of fear, there is a kind of grief that leads to death, and there is a kind of fear and a kind of grief that leads to life, that leads to devotion, that leads to a way of life, not just mere instances of, please God, make it stop. What kind of fear are you experiencing at the moment? Right? 
The election's like two days away. What kind of fear, right? Do we just want the election to stop? Do we just want these, right? Someone please make Biden and Trump just leave us alone. <laughs> Get them off stage. Just make it end. This is a lot of our prayers. How many of us just want the virus to go away? Whatever they knew of the exodus, it's lost in their arrogance and the lesson of the ark before Dagon and, and, and the ark and all of these towns is going unheeded. They are riding quite high in their pride and they are prepared for a very huge fall. That's what's going on in, 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 amongst the Philistines. They are riding quite high and God has to go through, through a lot of pain and turmoil in their lives in order to get them where he wants them, which is humility, <laughs> which is looking to him. Now, this is what it says of our God. This is what it says of Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter 38. We have to understand. We have to understand that this is the God that we serve right here in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 22 through 23. With pestilence and bloodshed, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstorms, hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then, then, they will know that I am the Lord. That is what it's going to take for him to show them that he is the Lord. I'm going to go back. I'm going to read again pestilence and bloodshed rain down upon him and his hordes and their many peoples what torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur pestilence and bloodshed and hurricanes and wildfires <laughs> and he goes and he goes and he, and he keeps adding things and he keeps adding things and what he is looking for is for them to acknowledge that he is in fact the Lord of heaven and earth Pestilence is Yahweh's calling card. It is his wake-up call, his way of grabbing people's attention. The Philistines think that they've defeated Yahweh. His exile in their midst leads to the destruction and humiliation of their chief deity. And then Yahweh, anything but defeated, takes a victory tour through Philistia, and eventually the Exodus-style plagues become too much for them. This is where we get a great deal of hope. Eventually, he does get their attention. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Recalling the exodus again, the Philistines are sending the ark of God full of treasure. Just as the Egyptians loaded up the fleeing Israelites with treasure, now the Philistines are loading up the ark with treasure. God is plundering the Philistines just as Israel plundered the Egyptians. The Philistines call this treasure, though, a guilt offering or trespass offering, which according to Leviticus chapter 5 is for the sin of sacrilege. That is, they know that they have trespassed upon the holy things and holy space of Yahweh. They know it. The Philistines are recognizing that they have committed a sacrilege against the ark. And look what they had to go through to get them there. Furthermore, the Philistines say that Yahweh will put his own throne back in its proper place. That's what they say. Let it, let it 
take itself. It's not just a gold box anymore. They had to pick their God up and put him on his pedestal. This God, they recognize, will, will lead itself back to where it belongs. Let it go back to where it belongs, because it doesn't belong here. They're terrified of it. They, they, they have transgressed something. They're, they want to put a guilt offering in there because they realize it's more than just a gold box. Yahweh has proven his supremacy, a supremacy utterly independent of his people. Dagon is a helpless no-god, needing to be cuddled and coddled and protected and sustained by worshipers. But Yahweh has not needed a single person to help him. He doesn't need anyone to put him back in his place. He doesn't need any assistance to regain his place he, he, because coming into exile was his plan. He is exactly where he wants to be. Yahweh does not need an army to defeat the Philistines. He can do it on his own without any assistance, without Israel, without you, and without me. So often we think that if we are not doing something for God and nothing is getting done, if things aren't working out the way that we have planned them, then nothing is going on for the kingdom of God. We fret about elections and pestilence and culture war and YouTube logins. All the while we are... We, down here, wringing our hands, wondering how we're going to build the, the kingdom of the Lord, he is in the secret places of hearts and immune systems, behind capital doors and in the halls of power and out on the street, turning history and human health, whatever direction he pleases, to manifest his lordship over the world. Is that how we would describe what's going on in our country now? We look out on it and we think, oh yes, God, God is right where he wants to be, they're right where he wants them to be. We're right where, we're, where he wants us to be. And everything is going exactly to plan. Is that how we think about our circumstances? Our God can defeat his enemies on their turf without us. God is not fighting our enemies. He is fighting his own. And he's not losing. He's not losing. He's winning. He's winning. And what does his victory look like? What does it look like? Right? All, all, all of the Philistines are dead. The whole land is turned into nothing. It's just utter destruction, top, bottom, left, right, inside, outside. Is that what it looks like? Right? That's what he did to Egypt. Is that what he does in every case? This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The cry of the city went up to heaven. In desperate straits, the Philistines offer sacrifices and pray to a God that they now see is greater than their local deities. God's goal is to bring the Philistines to their knees before him, to lift their voices up to heaven and need and recognition of his ability to answer them. This is your God. This is what he is seeking. Christ endured defeat at Calvary to be taken into captivity in Shehol, the kingdom of death, where Jesus defeated his enemies, crushing the head of Satan, rising again to life. That's the story that's being told here. Yahweh goes into exile. He goes into, into the kingdom of his enemies in order to, to defeat them there, to come again to the land of Israel, to deliver his people, and not only his people, but the nations. Romans chapter 14, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Revelation 1.18, And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Consider how far the triune God is willing to go to defeat our idols, to bring us to our knees before him offering sacrifice. He's gracious. He is merciful. But that does not mean that we live a safe and easy, comfortable life. We wanted public schools to shut down. Do you remember those days? Do you remember when those days when we prayed, please, God, if you could do anything, shut the public schools. If you could do anything, shut Hollywood down. Can you do it, God? If you could just shut Hollywood down, then we would be grateful. Well, we've got the schools shut. We've got Hollywood shut. God is striking down the idols of America, and what we, has been revealed to all of us is that we weren't really ready for that. That's not really what we wanted. Now, all we want is our comfortable normal back. That's what we want. Turns out, the idol that really needed to be slayed all along wasn't just Hollywood, it wasn't just government schools, it wasn't big government alone, it was our own comfort. God wants to be known as the Lord and Savior of the cosmos, and he will do it. And that ought to fill us with fear. That ought to fill us with fear. And, And what I find is that we are not nearly afraid enough. Not servile fear, not please make it end and get away from me fear, but the kind of fear that is reverent, the kind of fear that trusts, the kind of fear that hopes, the kind of fear that believes in the living God. He is revealing himself, whatever it costs him, whatever it costs us, and whatever it costs this idol-ridden land. Are you ready now? What is your prayer at this time? What, you, you look at everything that's going on. Do you just want COVID, 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 COVID to stop and go away? Do you just want the shutdowns to end? Please, God, just make them end, and then everything will be fine. Is it, is it the economy? You just want the re- economy to recover. You just want this or that guy to win the election. There's nothing necessarily wrong in wanting those things. But if that's all you want, if you just want the noise to end, you're not seeking the glory of God. You're not seeking the self-revelation of God. Do we want the cry of Seattle to go up to heaven? Do we want the cry of Washington to go up to heaven? Do we want the cry of America to go up to heaven? Can you imagine what it's going to cost to get us there? Are you ready? Are you ready for that? Now, we go into such a thing, and we don't say, hey, God, just let it rip, man. Kill as many people as possible. Burn down as much as you need to. We, we seek for, the, for a merciful hand. We seek that every knee will bow and bend to him quickly so that the mercy will come and the pain will end. But the thing, this is the question. How far are we willing to go? How far are we willing to see him go in order to bring this nation to its knees? This is, what, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for, uh, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Are we willing to endure any kind of discomfort, any kind of suffering for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the gospel, for the revelation of the lordship of Jesus Christ, 
for the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, not only for ourselves, but for all mankind. Are we, how far are we willing to go? Let us not bind God. Let us not bind his word. Let us not simply wish for it to stop and for all of our comforts to come back and all of the badness to stop and all the pain to cease. How far is he going to have to go to bring this nation to its knees? And is that, is that what you want? Let us pray that our land is unbound from subservience to idols and will join us prostrate and full of cries of mercy and songs of salvation before the throne of God. That's what we ought to be desiring, and we ought to desire it whatever it costs us, whatever it costs him. We ought to cry out to God to go to war against our idols, but when we do that, we have to know who we are dealing with and what he will do to those idols and what it will cost those idols and therefore what it will cost us. Right? It's not just idol worshippers out there somewhere faceless and nameless. When you are calling down the wrath of God on the idols of this nation, beware because some of them live in your own heart. Right? And, and that's why the people of God were unprepared for this moment because we think he's going to do something out there. We didn't realize how close to home it was going to come. And what we have to do is get comfortable with that real fast and trust him and trust that he knows what he's doing, that he's at work, that it's good, that people will respond, and that the fresh revelation of himself will come pouring out and people will get on their knees and cry out to him. That is what we're hoping for. And, and, And may he do it, and may he do it quickly, and may he do it thoroughly, and may we rejoice in it. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your ministry in our midst. We thank you, Lord God, that you are greater than we are, that you do not need us, but that you want us by your side, working and striving to build your kingdom. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, that you are striving to bring this nation to its knees. And we pray, Lord, that it would. We pray that you would slay our idols before our very eyes, that we would count the cost of being your disciples, Lord, that we know that you paid that cost for us so that we can follow you joyfully and and full of hope and anticipation of what you're going to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray and amen.